Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And our special breaking news coverage continues now of the grand jury indictment of Donald Trump and others in Fulton County, Georgia. I'm Caitlin Collins. The indictment, 98 pages. And what it contains is stunning. 45th president of the United States indicted on state charges stemming from his and others' efforts to overturn Joe Biden's election win in the state of Georgia. Prosecutors alleging tonight that Trump and others joined in a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the 2020 election. 18 other defendants are named in this indictment, including Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, John Eastman, Kenneth Cheeseborough, Jeffrey Clark, and Jenna Ellis, just to name a few. All 19 are facing racketeering charges, and prosecutors allege that they participated in a criminal enterprise with 30 unindicted co-conspirators. Let's begin tonight's coverage with CNN's Paula Reed, who is outside the courthouse there in Atlanta. I mean, Paula, reading through these 98 pages, but what's remarkable is that we just heard from the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, and she was saying that she is going to try all of these 19 defendants together, she says. Yeah, that was really surprising that that is how she would want to proceed on this case. You can do it, but as one of our colleagues said earlier, it's sort of like trying an entire football team at one time. Now, in the immediate future, she has given all of those defendants until next Friday at noon to surrender. And she wouldn't commit to exactly when she wants to bring this case, but did seem to suggest that she would request a date in the next six months. But Caitlin, as we know, the calendar is getting quite crowded with all of the possible trials, uh, both criminal and civil, that the former president is facing. Now, looking at this indictment, uh, sort of about 20 pages in, she lays out her theory of the case and highlights the key areas that she then goes into really specific detail on, including the efforts to install fake electors, to put forth fake slates of electors, to undermine the electoral college process, the harassment of election worker Ruby Freeman, also alleged efforts to solicit the Justice Department. We know the former president was leaning on his own Justice Department to try to interfere here in Georgia. And she also points to the pressure campaign faced by former Vice President Mike Pence. She also talks about breaching voting equipment and then filing false statements. So at a high level, that's how she lays out her case. And Caitlin, one of the things that's really struck out to me is she doesn't just include details from Georgia. She also includes details from Arizona. Pennsylvania and Michigan. So this is a case that, yes, is being brought in Georgia, but the conspiracy that she is laying out, the story that she is telling stretches across the United States. Yeah. And Paula, another thing, I mean, from that press conference, Sarah Murray, our colleague, asked her about coordination with Jack Smith, the special counsel here, and any contact between the two of them. I just thought it stood out. She did not say no. 
I know it was so weird because there wouldn't be anything improper, uh, particularly just logistically uh, talking to the special counsel. So it was surprising uh, that she wouldn't answer. Now, perhaps she's trying not to feed into political attacks from former president and other people uh, suggesting, right, it's some part, part of a larger politically biased conspiracy. That could have been her motivation. But it was surprising that she really dodged on that. In addition to the bigger question that she will likely at some point have to talk to the special counsel about, which is the timing for this trial. She sort of punted on that and then and it kind of said as an aside, they'll be requesting something in the next six months. It was surprising since she had this press conference uh, that she didn't give more specificity on some of these, these key questions. Yeah, we'll see what else she has to say about this. And of course, uh, a response from the former president and these others that have been indicted here. Paula Reed outside the courthouse in Atlanta. Thank you. Joining me here tonight at the table, CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers, our senior political commentator Scott Jennings, legal analyst Jennifer Rogers, a former federal prosecutor, and Tamidaya Aganga Williams, a former senior investigative counsel for the January 6th committee. And let me start with you, Tamidaya. I mean, just reading through this indictment, but also seeing what the district attorney had to say there, does it surprise you that she said, I mean, she wants to try all 19 of these co-defendants together? Uh, I think it's, it's quite surprising. I mean, prior to the committee, I was a federal prosecutor, and I think the logistics of that trial would be daunting. So I do think she may want to do that, but I think practically that may be some issues with that going forward. And Jennifer Rogers, what do you make of, of not just that, but also she's saying they have until August 25th at noon to come and surrender themselves. I mean, I should note that's also two days after the first Republican primary debate. Yeah, I mean, these are not career criminals. These are not folks that you think are going to flee the country. So there's really not much concern about letting them come in on their own. I mean, that's why they were indicted now publicly and not just arrested through an arrest warrant. So that's not that surprising to me, actually. What were your first thoughts reading through, I mean, this 97-page indictment? Yeah, um, just the scope of it. I mean, we had heard it was going to be of sweeping scope, but, you know, the notion of, of all of these people, including new people we really hadn't been hearing about, like Jenna Ellis, for example, Mark Meadows, who's been... MIA for so long in all of these cases, and everyone's been wondering if he's cooperating. Apparently, he's not cooperating, at least not with Fonnie Willis, because he's been indicted. So those were some of the surprises for me. What about you? I think I'm not quite as surprised. I mean, I think from the perspective of the committee, Jenna Ellis was one character that we had been well aware of, that she was really in the belly of the beast of this conspiracy. I think I'm surprised that uh, Fonnie Willis has chosen to charge so many people at the same time. I think comparing that to what Jack Smith did, where you could have a focus on just the president, when you have more defendants, you're going to have a diffuse focus, more motions, going to be a little bit more uh, of a beast, I think, to handle. Well, she went the other way, right? Jack Smith clearly went with just do Trump, try to get it done as soon as possible. She clearly at some point along the way decided, I'm not going to really worry about the timing. I'm just going to put everything in and everybody in and let the rest of it shake out. What's the calculation in a decision like that? Because it's not just Trump and the 18 other co-defendants here. It's, there's 30 unindicted co-conspirators that are listed in this indictment as well. I think what she's doing here is really telling a story. I think Jack Smith's story is about what did President Trump do, former President Trump, by himself. He's sitting there on a pedestal by himself. And I think here we're talking about a massive conspiracy, a group of individuals coming together. I think her RICO charges support that narrative. So what she wants us to take from this indictment is that all these people coordinated, conspired, work together to try to overturn this election. Yeah. And Scott Jennings, I mean, one of the things that we heard from Trump even before it was confirmed that he was indeed indicted, which we expected, was saying this is political interference in the election and whatnot. I mean, she was just asked about that. And she said she 
this is completely nonpartisan when it comes to the law. Well, that's that's not how Trump and his supporters are going to portray her. They're going to portray her as a partisan Democrat who's uh, doing this for political reasons in a county uh, that overwhelmingly voted for Joe Biden and in a county where she's elected by those people. You know, on the indictment, um, I have to say, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump on this, it is a startling thing to read uh, that the president of the United States was the head of a, quote, criminal organization. When you see that on a printed paper, it's pretty startling. And when you think about Georgia for Trump, all the, I mean, this is, this is a Waterloo place for him. You know, he lost in 2020, failed to oust Brian Kemp, the governor. His handpicked candidate for the Senate lost. And now he's indicted uh, in this sprawling indictment. And so you think about the role that the state of Georgia uh, may play in, in his, you know, ultimate downfall or resurgence if he somehow <laughs> beats all this. And I'll just say one, one final issue. This case, the January 6th case, the documents case, I don't see how the American people cannot know the outcomes of these things before they vote. I recognize you can't get all these things in before the primary, but if he's the nominee of the Republican Party, how can the American people not see the results of this before they were to cast votes next November when you consider everything that's been alleged here? Well, I mean, she wants them to know. She wants this trial. She said she's going to request a date, Bakari, within six months. Yeah, but... I, I want to push back a little bit on the narrative about the number of defendants that she actually indicted and the biting off this big apple. When you look at what Fani has done over her tenure there, whether or not it's YFN, uh, whether or not it's YSL, two very large, well-known rap groups in Atlanta, Georgia, she's actually indicted Young Thug right now. And our viewers are like Googling like crazy, who is Young Thug? All of them at one time. It's like the longest jury selection process going on right now in a RICO conspiracy case. And yes, it's taking more time than six months. And so I do think that she can handle this. I do think that she can indict all of these individuals at one time. I think that Fani's issue is going to be when you try to get this done in six months, to Scott's point. But this was also a very thorough process. Many times when you see a civil rights case or when you see something happen, let's not forget that I believe this incident occurred or this incident conspiracy began one day after she was elected. We want people to rush the judgment. She actually had a, a grand jury that was in place for months, although the grand jury could not have the did not have the power to indict. The grand jury was in place for months with the power to subpoena, the power to investigate. This is a very thorough investigation. That's why when you look through this and you read it, I'm like, it gets juicy around Act 30, 31. I mean, you can pick out which one of these is your favorite character. And I also think that there is going to be a sympathetic figure throughout all of this. People are going to start to look. I mean, we hear Donald Trump's name. We hear Fonnie Willis's name. She's a bad, bad woman. I love her. I want to protect her. But Ruby Freeman, for example... These individuals are going to come to play. The victims of this are not just the voters of Georgia, but they're real people. When you start to look at it, it's not some abstract voter this, voter that. But the, the, the persecution that Ruby Freeman had to go through, the torture, the torment that she had to go through, I think that is going to do very well in front of a jury, regardless of whether or not they're Democrats or Republicans. Well, and one of the people who is indicted here is someone who tried to intimidate Ruby Freeman personally and tried to kind of coerce her into making false statements, which is a bizarre aspect of this, but also a really concerning part. I mean, you're laughing and people at home are like, what? 
It's Kanye West's former publicist, I believe, is one of the 19 that <laughs> the is bylines of this. Here. I mean, you got to dig a little bit. I mean, you not only have that, but you have one of the coordinators for Black Voices for Trump. I mean, this this yeah, this entire uh, conspiracy just it, it's and not only. I mean, let's let's back up a minute. I mean, this is going to be one of the few trials and everything you're going to be able to see live on TV. Uh, the, the judge has already said the cameras are going to be there. They're going to be mugshots. They're going to be fingerprints. Every every hearing, every motion is going to be live on TV. This is going to be a very different setting for Donald Trump. I think one thing that also stands out to me as we look at all the tentacles that this has, I mean, Rudy Giuliani is the second name on this list of the, the co-defendants here who has been indicted. The fact that he has been indicted on racketeering charges, what is now going to be known to everyone as these RICO charges, I mean, that is what he used to bring down members of organized crime, mafia members. That's how he made his name as a prosecutor here in New York, was using these exact same laws that are now being used against him. Yeah, as the head of the office that I used to work for when I was at DOJ. I mean, it's a... It's a sad thing to see what Rudy has fallen to from, you know, the, the crime buster, the mafia buster that he used to be. But, you know, I got to Ruth Bakari. I mean, you read through all of the allegations here. And, and we saw a lot of this evidence before it came out in the public eye in the January 6th committee hearings and elsewhere. And it is a compelling story of Rudy Giuliani knowingly, blatantly lying, knowingly, blatantly defrauding the state legislature in Georgia. I mean, you know, this is backed up by stuff. It's, it's sad to see him fall this far, but he's done it to himself. And I, I just want to comment really quickly. And, and Scott, please like chime in because you know this better than I. But even in Georgia, he doesn't have any Republicans rushing to his rescue. I mean, you have the legal you have the legal downfalls and pitfalls, but you also have the political. I mean, the governor of Georgia is not going to come out with a statement and say, oh, my God, this is an abuse of yeah. justice. The lieutenant governor is a star witness. I mean, uh, it testified today. They testified and, today. And on top of that, the governor of Georgia, I guess, can't pardon the <laughs> no, way the, the way it works in other states or the way it works for the president. I actually asked this question today yeah. of Brian Kemp's team. Is it up to him? And they said you know, no. And, and so it, it, it does raise a lot of issues. I mean, you know, part of his campaign on this federal charges he's facing in these other cases, you know, if, if this is going on or he gets convicted, but he wins, I guess he can get himself out of that. I don't know how you get out of this. <laughs> you know, how do you get yourself out of this? I mean, it's obviously a, you know, a crazy scenario to think about, but one that's, a, it's a, it's a, you know, non-zero at this point. Well, that's why it's so striking, because it is the one where he doesn't have that insulation from from being reelected. I mean, I wonder what you think reading through this, given the work with the January 6th committee and what Bakari's talking about there, you're reading about Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss and their names and how they came and testified. I mean, that was the most gripping testimony of the entire public January 6th, you know, congressional hearings. And now to see them cited specifically in here and the intimidation and coercion that they faced. I think, I mean, first of all, you're right. That was incredibly gripping testimony. And I think what it showed was how the former president was willing to use his bully pulpit against individual citizens, people who he knew did nothing wrong. And he put and he attacked them. He sent his dogs on them and they suffered great harm because of that. And I think that moment in our hearings really showed the American people the damage that's done on a very individual basis when the president the former president, attacks specific people. And I think to Mayor Giuliani's point as well, he also used a lot of racial language when he mm-hmm. talked about these two women, suggesting that they were passing drugs between them or, or somehow in, you know, calling them hustlers. And I think 
that part of the tone here, when we're talking about Georgia, we're talking about Fulton County, I think it's a critical component as well. Can I just say one thing about these ladies? I've worked in elections for over 20 years all over the country. I've known volunteer election workers in just about every jurisdiction all over this country. Our elections are diffused for a reason, and they depend on people just like this. And to watch them get dragged was sickening. I hope they get justice for what happened to them criminally or civilly or whatever they've got coming because what happened to them? We can't have elections if you take private citizens and have famous people drag them through the mud. We won't have election workers if this is allowed to stand. So uh, I, I thought that was one of the most sickening things that happened after this election. I'm glad to see that maybe something's going to be done about it. Yeah. Uh, Laura, of course, looking through this, I mean, just reading the names in here, Mark Meadows, Mike Roman, mm-hmm. Harrison Floyd, you know, those are high-ranking White House officials, two Trump campaign officials that have all now been indicted in these state charges in Georgia. I mean, look at this yearbook photograph here in this spread, Caitlin. I mean, think about it. When I look at this, I think to myself, there are some who are very powerful and maybe have the means, others who are not going to be, comparatively speaking, and how that might influence the level of cooperation, knowing that there's mandatory minimums if convicted as well. I want to bring in right now David Schoen, who is the lead counsel for then-President Trump in his second impeachment trial. David, it's good to see you on another, frankly, well, history continues, and it continues to be in the making when it comes to Donald Trump. By my tabulation, and it's a rough one, it's after midnight, we're talking nearly 100 different charges in total for this former president. Here alone, 13, he's being accused of participating in a multi-state criminal enterprise. This is in addition to the other cases against him. How is he supposed to, or is he going to, defend himself? Well, it certainly has to break down each case, you know, on its own merits. I have to say, I know that you and Caitlin are scrupulously fair at all times, so I was disappointed to not hear any member of the panel talk about the presumption of innocence. We're talking about this indictment as if, you know, everything is a fact in here. But beyond all that, let me just raise a couple other issues for you, if I may. Um, I don't think it's going to be possible to try them all together. Your panel, I think, accurately discussed the logistical problems. The Young Thug case, you know, is months and months of jury selection. We learned a lesson in organized crime cases in New Jersey about the problems with these mass indictments. But I also think as a practical matter... Uh, former President Trump is going to move to uh, remove this case to federal court. This case is much different from the New York case. Um, I think this case clearly fits within the statute 28 U.S.C. 1442A as an act performed uh, under color of office. The 11th Circuit uh, construes that pretty broadly. It doesn't require a causal connection. There's a case on it, Caver versus Alabama. Let me let me lean in. I don't want to cut Um, you off. I want to I want to just translate for a second for the audience. I don't want to cut you off, but I want to lean into what your point is that you're making when you're talking about this, because to remove it to federal court essentially means it would no longer be under the purview of Fannie Willis as the D.A. from Fulton County. It would no longer be a state issue. It would go to a federal judge instead. And you're naming the criteria for how you get there. Why do you think this is ripe for that consideration? First of all, I do think uh, Ms. Willis could carry on with the case. I think that her staff could certainly follow it to federal court 
and try the case there. Um, that's one. But I think, look, the statute is pretty clear. It's charged officers of the United States can remove a criminal case brought against them in state court if the case is for or relating to any act performed by or for them under color of their office. So the idea here would be he was acting as pre in his role as president. That's why he had sway with the officials. That's why he took the actions he did, whether he was successful or right or wrong or otherwise. It was under color of office. And uh, as I say, the 11th Circuit, among other circuits, construes it pretty broadly. Congress amended the act to um, construe it a bit broadly, more broadly, although some circuits haven't come along with that. Um, and so the idea, you but know, David, in, the, in the New York case, they tried there, to do David, it. David, excuse yeah. me, only one person, though, conceivably, sure. there are some elected officials, but one of the main ones here, of course, is Donald Trump. If that was the color of office, there are, you know, more than a dozen people who are listed here who would not be able to rely on that same philosophy of under the quote unquote color of office. But I do want to focus on the color of television for a second, because unlike some of the other trials that he will be facing, this we've already seen today. We watched it be the actual indictment. We walked over to the judge. The clerk then walked it out. We have a lens and a view inside of the courtroom. No more courtroom sketches here. I wonder what you make of that. It, it, does Trump benefit from having the whole world see? Because it occurs to me this might be a double-edged sword. I think you're 100% right. And back to your first point, you're right. I was really just speaking about President Trump. There may be on the, on the removal issue. There may be others who try to come under it and maybe they be successful. But you're 100% right. I was really just referring to him. I think you're also 100% right, as usual, that this is a double-edged sword. Um, he plays the publicity very well. He's, uh, you know, he knows uh, how to appeal to certain people. And I think, quite frankly, in Georgia, where, um, in Georgia, you're going to find many people, prospective jurors, who find it hard to believe, however detailed the charges are, that this effort by former President Trump and others constitutes a criminal enterprise as a matter of common sense, uh, not just, you know, the legal definition. So I think all of those things play into it. But yes, I think the cameras may well be playing to him if, the, if he's actually tried in state court. You know, there's the camera and then there's the audio, right? It's almost that combination. Um, we remember that call, and I need to tell you and remind our audience of that, what, 11,780 votes, one more than Biden had. We heard that tape. We heard the former president, then president, speaking to Brad Raffensperger, for example. You know all these details quite well, of course, of having um, handled the impeachment trial, second impeachment trial. Uh, but I wonder, the fact that that is on tape, uh, the fact that it's there, and, and we can play it for a second to remind the audience what it sounded like. I want you to listen to it and, and try to tell me what you do with that as defense counsel. Listen to this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. Now, of course, as you rightly pointed out, and as Fannie Willis pointed out, the presumption of, of, of innocence is certainly here. This is an indictment about probable cause. But prospective jurors have likely heard this as well. You'd be hard-pressed to find jurors who are completely ostriches, who've never heard any of this and have had their head in the sand or maybe the Rip Ben Winkles of the world. How do you defend against when it's on tape? It's a great question. Tapes are very powerful. I think in this case, though, the clear answer is especially playing to a juror who feels this is piling on or politically motivated. You play the rest of the tape and the rest of the tape. You know, this is the snippet that's always played. Mm -hmm. But the rest of the tape reasonably could be construed by a listener as saying 
he, President Trump and others on the tape, you know, there were these lawyers on the tape too, believed that there were several kinds of irregularities in the election, that votes were stolen, whatever it is they believed or said on the tape, and that therefore, therefore all we need to come up with is the difference of this amount of votes, even though we on that tape, the folks on the tape, believe that there were many more votes that were stolen or lost or improperly cast or whatever the theory is. So I think you play the rest of the tape and highlight those areas also to put this in that context of your theory of defense. You know, I wonder, because there's a number of lawyers that are mentioned in this indictment, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, Jenna Ellis, just to name a few. And there has been the perception, and there has been sort of the, the thought that Donald Trump's legal counsel, we've even seen it in a previous case among his counsel, I believe Mr. Lauro, talking about the advice of counsel. Obviously, an umbrella term to suggest that he was, listen, just following the advice of counsel here, and that can't be wrong. That can't be all that bad. Do you have some concerns? Obviously, you've been his counsel to some degree um, in, in, in this notion. Do you have some concerns about what that's like? When you are the defendant and you are either the counsel, obviously the, the attorneys, or you are Donald Trump or anyone else, there is going to be a tension there because you're going to have to, on the one hand, decide, one, if the attorney-client privilege is going to stand, two, whether or not you're going to jump a ship, so to speak, and say, hold on, I didn't tell you that, or yes, I did, and have that be perhaps an escape hatch for your co-defendant in these matters. What do you make of the advice of counsel defense, especially in this case? Well, again, as usual, you're asking the right questions. Um, this case has a couple of twists on advice of counsel. One, as you pointed out, you see some of the lawyers on whose advice uh, he relied indicted co-conspirators or co-defendants in the case. And by the way, and we have to point out, um, it's very clear under RICO law, they're going to have to prove more than a conspiracy. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, so you have them part of the indictment. I think you're going to see people flipping left and right, probably in this case, um, over to the other side of the case because they don't want to be defendants in the case, if that's possible. And then therefore, that's the other twist on it. That's going to affect uh, what they say the advice was that they gave. Remember, he's heavily going to rely on the fact that several of these lawyers were on the call. People whose advice he got before the call and uh, during the call, we're actually on the call. And you can hear them interrupting. You can hear him asking for their advice during the call. You can hear him asking for Ms. Mitchell, for example, you know, to speak up and say what it is she had told him and so on. It's a fascinating dynamic that really highlights this issue. There's a lot of fascination here, and this is certainly not going away, perhaps at the speed that Fannie Willis thinks it may in a six-month trial. David Schoen, nice speaking to you. Thank you very much. Caitlin? Someone who knows the Trump legal team well, Laura. We have said, you know, 19 people have been indicted in this case, including the ones that you see here. Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, his former chief of staff at the White House, Mark Meadows, John Eastman, Kenneth Cheeseborough, Jeffrey Clark, Trump campaign attorney Jenna Ellis and Sidney Powell. We have a lot more on the stakes that Donald Trump and those names mentioned there and the others who were indicted tonight in Georgia we are joined now by senior contributor and former Nixon White House counsel, John Dean. I mean, John, just on first thought, looking at this 98-page indictment, what went through your head? Uh, my first reaction was she didn't just charge him. She threw the book at him. Uh, it's a very, very impressive document. I've only made it through a little bit of it, scanned a lot of it. And the very problem you're just raising, Caitlin, 
is the people you named are both federally charged and they're being charged in Georgia as well. That's the sort of thing during Watergate that was worked out in advance. So I think I understand why Fawny did not want to address whether she'd talked to Jack Smith or not, because I think they're in conversation right now because they are stepping on each other's toes. And what could that mean for this? I mean, there was a reason Sarah Marie asked that question, because it has raised uh, the prospect here of what these two simultaneous cases and trials could look like. I mean, we've seen how quickly Jack Smith is trying to move. It's a judge there that moves very quickly as well. And you heard the district attorney in Georgia tonight in Fulton County saying she wants to see a trial date within, they're going to request one within six months. Well, what it could mean, for example, is Mark Meadows is not not really named as an individual other than his chief of staff position in the federal indictment. It appears in that indictment that he's a cooperating witness, that he's going to assist. If he's being charged in Georgia, that might cause some reluctance or certainly taint his testimony as to what he'd be willing to testify to in the federal case. That's the sort of thing I think they have to work out. Uh, and I'm surprised it did not get worked out. You heard David Schoen there. I mean, he, he's someone who he represented Trump at one of his impeachment trials. I mean, he knows the Trump legal world. He said he predicts that some of these 18 others that are listed underneath Donald John Trump are, are going to flip. Is that something that do you think the former president should be worried about tonight as well? I think he should be very worried about it. And I suspect a Georgia judge will step in quickly and let them know that uh, they're not going to tolerate it. I'm sure the prosecutor is very aware of Trump's behavior. His effort to intimidate witnesses is well known now. So, uh, yes, it is very likely some will flip and they just want to see the indictment and they've seen it now and it's not pretty. You worked, I mean, you were obviously the White House counsel in the Dixit administration. The White House counsel's office, as it stands now, is not that far from the chief of staff's office. Mark Meadows, with the exception of the former president, is the highest ranking White House official to be charged here, listed in this indictment. I think he's like the fifth or sixth person listed. I mean, what do you make of the fact that a former White House chief of staff has been indicted on state charges of racketeering in this you know, enterprise, Fonnie Willis says, to overturn the election. Well, he, he didn't learn much from history because he's not the first chief of staff to be indicted, obviously. H.R. Uh, Haldeman, who is sort of the model still today of how a chief of staff can effectively operate. But Meadows, uh, you know, he was overwhelmed by his, his boss, the president. And it appears, I think he's cooperating. That's my read. And so I think he'll probably find a solution to get out of the Georgia case, too. You see echoes of Watergate in this, or is it, is it bigger than that? How do you see it? Uh, it it's much bigger than Watergate, Caitlin. Uh, it, it's of a whole different dimension. Uh, it goes to the very foundation of democracy. Nixon abused some powers. He... Uh, exceeded his authority when he shouldn't, but he wasn't taking on the basics of the country. Whereas Trump wanted to stay in office, he wanted to use Georgia and abuse Georgia as part of that plan. And so this is very different and much more serious and much more troubling. John Dean, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. And we'll be back with much more of our breaking news, breaking down this 98-page indictment. Former President Donald Trump and 18 others 
have been indicted on what prosecutors allege was a wide-ranging multi-state conspiracy. How far did it stretch? That's next. Our breaking news tonight, the former president of the United States and 18 others facing criminal charges in the Fulton County, Georgia, grand jury's investigation of the Trump 2020 election subversion case. Here with me now to talk about this display, yearbook photo of sorts, is senior justice correspondent Evan Perez, Washington correspondent for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tia Mitchell, CNN political commentators Jonah Goldberg and Ashley Allison, and CNN legal analyst Norm Eisen. We've got the perfect panel to talk about all of this because, first of all, I know we make history a lot in terms of these indictments. We're now in number four. It was expected to come in. But I don't think people really thought it would be the exponential notion of everything else. And I want to start with you, Evan, here, because this happened in Georgia, of course, but they are very precise that this actually, this enterprise, as they're calling it, happened in more than just Georgia. It happened in places like Arizona and Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and D.C., the enterprise operating in all those places. We have a map, actually, too, that shows people that where we're talking about, just to give you the spread of where they allege the enterprise to have operated, what's your takeaway? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that that, that stuck out to me in reading the the document was that the scope of, of the acts that she uses and the prosecutors use to support the racketeering charge, it, it goes beyond things that happened in Georgia. And I, and I wondered why that was. And she addressed it at the press conference. But certainly, you know, if you notice, uh, I think Act 7 uh, involves a call to uh, top officials in Arizona, right? Again, trying to address the election results there. Uh, Act 8 ha- has to do with a meeting that happened in Get- Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, by Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania legislators. Act 50 involves a call to Wisconsin's uh, senior officials in, in, in Wisconsin state. And then, of course, uh, Act Number 7 is, happened here in Washington, where they were pressuring top officials of the Justice Department to say that there was fraud and then let us take care of it, right? Um, and, and she said that basically the reason why she was using all of these, uh, the, these acts that did not happen in her jurisdiction was because they were all in the furtherance of trying to overturn the Georgia election results. And so that explains it. Uh, and I think that that's a very, it's a very interesting and certainly expansive way for her to approach this. Because a lot of us, I think, before we saw this document, were anticipating this is going to be a lot more limited, right? They were going to, like, just home in and drill down on everything that happened in Georgia, including, of course, the fake electors and the the effort to to, to get into those uh, Coffee County uh, election machines. So the idea that she's gone big Mm -hmm. uh, and expansive on this is, is, I think, very interesting. But it's also interesting... uh, you know, it's been a while since I read the Jack Smith indictments because that was what, like, weeks ago. <laughs> but um, that was an eternity ago. Yeah, so I we're know. On but, yeah. Four but, now. but so in dog years, it was a long time ago. But um, my recollection of the Smith indictments is that temporally, like in the timeline, they basically begin with January six. They happen. You know, it's 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 or the beginning of the election, I should say. Mm-hmm. And um, this Act One is really interesting to me. It's about how. On October 31st, Donald Trump discussed a draft speech in which he was going to claim that uh, the election was stolen with a voter fraud, which means it was a plan going into it all along, which is something we've heard other things like from Steve Bannon right. much earlier. He was 
making those intimations. But this shows that this was not a reaction in real time on election night, but this was a strategy because they knew that they were going into it from the beginning likely to lose. Important word you use, the speech, right? This was not really present in the Jack Smith indictment. The idea of speech and opening himself up now to the notion of the First Amendment issues right. and beyond. That is certainly, I mean, they have, they have tweets in here. But she's very careful. Uh, uh, to, to Evan's point, it's a nationwide sweep. It's a nationwide story. But she's very careful to charge the crimes that were in Georgia or that hit Georgia. So she captures, it's a very important contribution, I think. And, and, and you're right, Jonah, to contrast it with uh, Jack Smith, who started with November 14th. He went narrow. Mm-hmm. You go narrow, you go fast. He wants to get Trump to trial fast and first, I think. She wants to tell the story, and that is a service to the country, particularly because this is going to be a televised trial. And this indictment is our pardon insurance. If Trump or another Republican wins, they can pardon their way out of that Jack Smith case or just order DOJ to drop the case. This is the insurance, so it should be big. I think it's done carefully. It's done well, and I think it's historic. You know, I think it's interesting. Many people before the election of 2020 were waving the flag that Donald Trump was going to try and undermine this election and were casted as people who were radical and just didn't want Donald Trump to win. When now we have parts of the indictment citing that that was actually his intention. The thing that is so interesting is that Mark Meadows is actually named as a co-conspirator. And one of the things under the Jack Smith indictment is everybody wanted to know where is Mark Meadows because we assume that he's probably working with the special counsel. People have mentioned the Young Thug case before. One of the things that the DA did in that case was that she pleaded out a lot of the co-conspirators in that RICO case. So my question in this is that we have, what, uh, 19 uh, other folks or uh, 19 other folks listed here. Will they also, now that they've been indicted, turn on Donald Trump? The the lesser known names, I mean, the pressure begins now, right? The, The pressure begins immediately for people who don't want, you know, they're, they're with racketeering is at least five years, that's right? That's right. And she addressed this. At so, least five years. Right, at that's, least five that's years. A, that's a huge power dynamic because you're talking about one of these people has a whole lot of money to actually defend against these cases and the rest probably don't have much. Right, and I think it's, I think what's so interesting about the indictment is that she takes... A lot of time, most of the indictment is laying out these RICO charges, this criminal enterprise, and not saying that it was in silos. She's saying it's all connected. The, the fake electors, the tampering of the election evidence in Coffee County, the calls to state officials, the, the misinformation and disinformation that was shared at the legislative hearings, that they're all connected. And so you can't sever Donald Trump from, uh, um, you know, Rudy Giuliani or, or anybody else, Eastman and all these others, that they're all, that they all were working together and calling each other and texting each other again, innocent until proven guilty. But I think it's going to be hard harder to um, to try to sever it. And it's going to be interesting. How do they legally because they've been working together, but now they've all got to have to fend for themselves. Mm. I bet, bet too, on on one point, Evan, the idea of the severance, 
they could likely be tried. They, she wants it to be tried together, all 19, but they could individually move to sever if there are issues of efficiency or judicial fairness that are part of it. Last word. Well, uh, just real quick, on, on what, reading this document also, I was looking for hints at what we, what we might see next from Jack Smith. And we know the investigation is continuing there, right? And the question is, you know, some of these, she's telling us a lot about some of the, the specific acts that happened in Coffee County, which could be federal crimes, by the way. Some of these things that she is, is citing here, some of these counts, could also be federal crimes. You guys, we are talking about a former president who now has 91 charges against him cumulatively across four separate criminal allegations and indictments. 91. Everyone, thank you so much. We're going to come back as well. And Fulton County DA Fannie Willis speaking tonight. She has set a deadline for the defendants to surrender her use of words and talked about how she sees this trial and the timeline moving forward. We'll bring you all those details next. Back in a moment. Our breaking news tonight, the former president, Donald Trump, indicted in the 2020 election subversion case in Georgia, along, by the way, with 18 other defendants. He is charged with 13 counts in this indictment, including a racketeering charge for allegedly attempting to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in Georgia back in 2020. Joining me now is CNN political correspondent Sarah Murray, who is at the courthouse for us now. Sarah, I mean, we have just heard, I understand, from Trump and his attorneys. How are they responding? Well, Laura, as you might expect, they're not particularly thrilled by how things have gone down today. We've heard from Drew Finling, one of Trump's attorneys here in Georgia, as well as his associates, saying the events that have unfolded today have been shocking and absurd. They go on in this statement to say that it was the district attorney clearly decided to force through and rush this 98-page indictment. And they say this one-sided grand jury presentation relied on witnesses who harbor their own personal and political interests, some of whom ran campaigns touting touting their efforts against the accused and or profited from book deals and employment opportunities as a result. Laura, as you know, most grand jury presentations are pretty one-sided. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why they say you're innocent until proven guilty. This is the indictment stage. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is obviously still going to have a lot of work ahead of her to bring this case to trial and to try to get convictions against these defendants. A really important point about the grand jury, Sarah. I mean, it's not as if there are other two-sided grand juries. It's really a probable cause finding, as you well know. And so you're not going to have the defendants in the actual grand jury or even have attorneys present there to answer and respond, let alone a judge. But the credibility attacks, as you have said, are already beginning, whether it's book deals or other ways. But you've been covering and had a fine job, by the way, the different Trump investigations and indictments for a while now, Sarah. I wonder what is standing out to you about this latest one. It's the fourth. It is the fourth. And I think that there was, in a lot of ways, a different kind of pressure on this district attorney because she is a state-level prosecutor and because this investigation has been going on for so long. It's been going on for two and a half years. There were points where we thought that District Attorney Fonnie Willis was going to be the first person to bring charges against Trump, and now it appears that she's the last. And I think what we saw 
in this indictment today is a reflection of how much of their work they wanted to show. They wanted to make it very clear that this was a granular indictment. You see that in all of these different acts they lay out in furtherance of the conspiracy. And of course, one of the biggest differences here is that you don't see Donald Trump's name listed at the top of the indictment with no other names listed alongside it. And yes, this indictment includes 30 unindicted co-conspirators, but it also includes 18 other named defendants, a number of people around Donald Trump, a number of people who were in his inner circle who are facing very serious charges, Laura. A great point, Sarah. And I mean, Caitlin, the thought that this is all going to be about a so-called rushed proceeding, I bet we're going to hear a lot about that given the timeline now. Of course, rushed they mean by the fact that it happened over yesterday. It, was, it didn't start on Monday, did it? This has been years in the making now. Yeah, she started investigating right after he placed that phone mm -hmm. call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. And of course, we've seen where it has come here. Now he is accused of illegally soliciting votes from Brad Raffensperger in that call. Laura, back here with my panel, Bakari Sellers, Scott, Jen Jen Scott Jennings, Jennifer Rogers, and Tamadaya Agonga Williams. Uh, I mean, Trump is now facing, you just do some simple math here, 91 criminal charges in four different cases. He has 10 days to surrender himself in this case, along with the other defendants. I mean, the first Republican debate is nine days away. Yeah. I mean, this kind of stuff wreaks havoc on a presidential campaign scheduling office, <laughs> you know, when you're constantly turning yourself in. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know when he's going to turn himself in. We were joking off air a moment ago. What if he turns himself in the day of the debate? And just kind of take, kind of, kind of take, I mean, kind of takes over. I mean, I don't know, I don't know what he's going to do, but, you know, there's clear evidence that every time something happens to him, all of the media's attention goes to him. All of the Republican attention goes to him uh, and, and sucks the oxygen out of the room for, for everyone else. Um, if I might, Republicans tonight, here's what, here's what some are thinking, trying to put a spin on it. He's innocent until proven guilty. This is only one side of the story, hearing that. Anybody remember the jury four person who was a little weird that came out? That's still on people's minds. The document that was posted today and then pulled down before the grand jury saw it. That's being chatted about. Partisan Democrat prosecutor. And why aren't Democrats ever held accountable for claiming elections were stolen and trying to interrupt electoral college counts when they do it to Republicans? That, that's what you're going to hear, I think, over the next, it seems to me, few hours from people who are trying to be defensive of Trump tonight. Yeah, but I mean, you're going to hear that. I mean, that last part is something that is often trotted out. But I mean, you can read the 98 pages here of why yeah. this is different. And the Oh, it doesn't make this good. <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, a lot of this right. is not even inside testimony or, or what we hear. I mean, these are public statements from no, Trump, I, it, what we heard from Mark Meadows, what Sidney Powell was saying on TV. And one of the things and one of the arguments that falls flat often when you hear Republicans or, or Republican uh, legal, quote-unquote, scholars uh, who, who may skew further to the right is they say that it's very difficult to prove intent uh, in these crimes. And I say, well, that may be one thing, but if you can couple that intent with an overt act, then you have the elements of a, of a criminal enterprise or criminal activity. And here she actually laid out, I don't know how many acts it is, but she actually laid out act after act after act, these overt, outward things that Donald Trump and the other 18, 19 individuals did. And so I think what Fani did tonight was really, really comprehensive. And I just want to take a moment to acknowledge who she is, because we've seen Donald Trump, whether or not it's April Ryan or whether or not it's our own Abby Phillip, 
kind of, or or uh, Yamish. I mean, we've seen him snap at uh, black women in, in journalism. We've seen him be decently antagonistic towards black women in particular. And here he has Fani Willis, who's Fani is Swahili. It means prosperous. She's the daughter of a criminal defense attorney who was a Black Panther, right? And so they're going to attempt to smear someone who grew up in the movement, who grew up as part of an activist culture, who went to an HBCU for part of her scholarship, uh, and who is now on the other side of the table. And what she's shown in this indictment is not only is she more than adequate to stand up toe-to-toe with any legal scholar, shown or whomever else, but she's also put together a thorough indictment, which speaks to those overt acts coupled with that intent. Yeah, I mean, we've seen those attacks almost immediately. I mean, it's not surprising, I don't think. But, I mean, they'll raise questions about what she has said publicly about this. Sarah Murray was alluding to that before the press conference started. But when she was asked about whether or not it's a political prosecution, she went out of her way to say, I mean, it's nonpartisan. And I think, I mean, look, it is what it's going to be. I mean, we're in this time period where Twitter or what's it called? What's it called now? X, X. X.com, whatever it is, where whatever this new website that we spend way too much time on uh, or he's on true social, actually, it'll be just copied and pasted and reposted. People are going to say all of these other things. But the fact is, it's going to be 12 jurors in in Georgia who are going to be able to decide, um, excuse me, Georgia, uh, the Southern District of New York, um, Washington, D.C. and Miami, Florida, which determined his fate. But before we get there, it's much until we get there and we are going to fight this out in the court of public opinion. She is a partisan Democrat. And that's what they're going to say. And so if you're Trump and you're thinking about how do I keep my people together, how do I keep folks aligned? I mean, this is obviously one of the arguments uh, that that they're going to make. Now, the the counter argument to that, if I were in the Republican primary against him, is we have a simple choice to make. Do we want this election to be about Donald Trump's legal proceedings or do we want it to be about Joe Biden's job performance? And every time something like this happens, the answer to that question, in my opinion, becomes more and more clear. Yeah, but... Not to voters, or at least not what we're seeing in the polls. We'll see if this changes this. Thanks, everyone. Stand by. Our special coverage is going to continue breaking down and looking at this 98-page indictment, a new round of charges for the former president, but also 18 more new co-defendants. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome back to our special breaking news coverage. I'm Laura Coates. On this stunning night in American history, as the 45th U.S. president is criminally indicted now for the fourth time. Donald Trump now standing accused of leading a criminal enterprise to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. And I'm Caitlin Collins. It's not just Trump. 18 others also have been charged alongside him in this 41-count indictment tonight, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, his former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, and the one-time mayor of New York. All 19 defendants are facing racketeering charges. I mean, the indictment states all, quote, refuse to accept that Trump lost and they knowingly and willfully joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election in favor of Trump. Joining me now here in D.C., CNN's Evan Perez, also the Washington correspondent of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Tia Mitchell, and Norm Eisen's back as well, former House Judiciary Special Counsel, and then President Trump's first impeachment trial. Look, this is happening in Georgia. Although other states are implicated here, Tia, Georgia is unique for a number of reasons. 
not the least of which is that you've got Republicans who were really in the crosshairs, essentially, of the wrath of Donald Trump and also those who were solicited specifically. This is not, I mean, this is Brian Kemp. This is Brad Raffensperger. This is Gabriel Sterling, to name a few. Yeah, and it's interesting. I actually started out the day in Atlanta. The first person I saw when I got to the courthouse was Gabriel Sterling Mm. arriving for his interview with the grand jury today. Um, We don't think Raffensperger was called for the grand jury, but it's likely if this thing goes to trial, Raffensperger could be called. Of course, we know Jeff Duncan, the former lieutenant governor, went to the grand jury today. He's likely to be called. It could even go up to Brian Kemp. Um, and there are, when you read through the indictment, there are a lot of Republican state senators that are also mentioned as people who were pressured to either um, take action that um, the district attorney believes was illegal or... Or they were lied to. Or that they were lied to in these in these legislative hearings that, you know, all these various uh, of these indicted co-conspirators that said that they went to these legislative bodies and either solicited them for unlawful activities or did not present factual evidence to them. And so it is really interesting that this is happening in Georgia. So it isn't as partisan as Trump and his allies and his attorneys might try to make it seem, there are Republicans who have repeatedly said what he was doing around the 2020 election was wrong. And by the way, I mean, just think about, you know, we know this is televised. I mean, unlike the remaining trials, this, I mean, the fact that you're going to have television able to be seen here, first of all, you're talking about Donald Trump, who has not shied away from a camera in recent times, who's really thrived in that medium and space, But also, you're talking about, can you imagine, just to Tia's point, a a, a parade of Republicans, these highly prominent officials who might be witnesses to testify in Georgia? Who all did the right thing. You know, certainly these are very important witnesses. These are people who stood up and, and, you know, abided by their oath, right, to do the right thing, to do the things that they were sworn to to do to uphold the the state constitution and, 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 and just you know, stood up for their voters, the voters of that state, they knew there wasn't fraud and they did the right thing, just like Mike Pence did, right? And that's what's going to be probably one of the more powerful aspects of this because Donald Trump is, and his allies are really painting this picture that, that, that people are out to get him, that it's all Democrats. And here you have, as you pointed out, all of these important Republican figures that will be called and... But then on the other hand, you have the David Schaefer's, the head of the Georgia Republican Party, the Kathy Latham's, the Sean Stills. You have other very active Republican leaders uh, in the state who uh, allegedly were part of a RICO conspiracy, a racketeering enterprise instead of to steal money or goods uh, to steal the rightful electoral votes from Joe Biden for Donald the Trump. So is, it's like the it's what's going to be on trial in that televised trial is the two faces of the Republican Party. And we see that a lot here in Washington, too, in the the struggle between the MAGA group in Congress and the uh, Mitch McConnell's, the mainstream, mainline, Main Street Republicans. But you, you heard from David Schoen earlier in our conversation, right. right? He was the counsel in the second impeachment trial for Donald Trump, and he made the comment, look, this might not stay in Georgia, at least in the state level. He talked about maybe having it removed federally. And I can tell you, 
when I'm at the table and I know I saw the familiar Norm Eisen rock forward, <laughs> leaning into the moment. So let me let you release that tension. Uh, I, um, first of all, David is a very fine criminal defense lawyer. But he's absolutely wrong about uh, Section 1442, the removal statute. Uh, And here's why. The law is that you can only remove a case, the Supreme Court has held in Nixon v. Fitzgerald, you can only take a case out of it. Fonnie Willis talked about this very eloquently in her press conference, state elections, state jurisdiction to protect democracy. We don't just let you yank that willy-nilly. It's only if... It is within the outer perimeter, it's a quote from the Supreme Court, of your official duties. Well, how is a political candidate staging an attempted coup within the constitutional job description of a president's official duties? And I'll see David's 11th Circuit case, the federal jurisdiction, with a controlling case, Balcom v. Martin, which says an officer who acts out of any personal interest, check, malice, check, Actual criminal intent, check, or for any other reason than to do his duty, no removal. This case, Trump will try. David didn't mention. It was tried with the Manhattan case. Mm-hmm. Alvin Bragg, Judge Hellerstein, body slammed that effort at uh, removal of the Bragg case by Trump. Same thing is going to happen here. Well, before we venture into true law school nerd territory and try citing We're beyond. Cases, we're beyond I that. Beyond. I know. I was, I was like, ooh, we'll tell you more. Um, let me ask you about this, Evan, because, listen, you know, there was a moment when that Brad Raffensperger call is going to come up, right? And it's, we've heard it so many times. We've heard about the idea of, I just want to find that 11,780 yeah. votes, just one more. You know, there is this thought that that somehow that's only part of the story. And then yeah. if you were to play more of the tape, it would show you something that's beneficial to Donald Trump. And I think David uh, Schoen kind of addressed that. And he said that if you play the full context of the tape, that you that the jury will have a different opinion or might get a different picture. Well, the problem with that is prosecutors will show the full context of this, and they'll show that by the time that phone call is made, and it's included in count number 28, uh, by the time that call is made, the, 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 the former president and his allies know full well that they have no support for their fraud claims. As a matter of fact, they're exchanging uh, emails, uh, and there's a lot of things that she cites here, that the the DA cites in here, that shows they were fully aware that there was no fraud, or at least not not their fraud to support this, right? And and, and very importantly, I think um, just, you know, in the past year, you know, David O'Carter, the judge, uh, who really pierced the veil of all of this, ruled that, that, that somewhat John Eastman was doing with Trump was violating, you know, basically by, by virtue of the fact that they were in a criminal conspiracy meant that they, you know, that you could access uh, all of his attorney-client yeah. uh, product. And so one of the things that I think is a, is a problem for the former president is that the full context here is very problematic. For mm. him. And I think th- this is going to be the core we know of President Trump's defense. A lot of these uh, indicted conspirators, co-conspirators' defenses is that Well, we believe the election was stolen. You have a right to say what's on your mind. First Amendment, if they believed it and they all were acting in this way, not because of some conspiracy, but because they all just kind of agreed. But I think what Fonnie Willis is trying to do in this indictment, what we know will unfold during trial is they will say, 
but they were told repeatedly that this wasn't the case. And there are plenty of people who aren't indicted, but were in these rooms are mentioned um, and could be called to testify to say, hey, we told them the evidence wasn't there. We told them what they were doing wasn't legal. We told them what they were doing wasn't going to pass muster. And they continued to forge. And, and, and quite frankly, this indictment starts names things preceding the 2020 election. And there are dates that go all the way to 2022 mm -hmm. in some of the acts that are mentioned. So, again, it's it's interesting because they really laid out a timeline that spans almost two years. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, first of all, if this is going to be the same, if this judge will still be the judge um, at the end of this, by the way. And also um, the conversation surrounding Caitlin as we look and unpack the rest of this and continue to analyze it. You know, who's not here? Who are these co-conspirators that were unindicted? Who might be shaking in their boots this evening wondering, well, is that going to change all of a sudden? Yeah, and 30 people uh, is obviously no small number there. Uh, another aspect of this is, of course, the breach of voting systems in Coffee County, Georgia. And CNN's national security reporter, Zach Cohen, is outside the courthouse in Atlanta and has been covering this. Zach, I mean, you, were, you and Sarah Murray broke this story yesterday. This kind of got into this small county. It only has about 43,000 people or so in it. But it is, you know, maybe not one of the most well-known aspects of what is now in this indictment, but it does feature pretty prominently, including on the list of the defendants here. Yeah, Caitlin, it really does play a central part in this alleged broader conspiracy to overturn the 2020 election results. And as you said, we've been tracking this story for the better part of almost two years now. This breach in Coffee County, Georgia, which is about 200, 200 miles south of where we are right now in downtown Atlanta. But Four of the co-defendants named alongside Trump in this indictment are linked to the Coffee County breach, and several of the charges that they face are for their alleged involvement in what took place on January 7, 2021, and in the weeks after. The evidence really details some topics that we've covered previously, some text messages, surveillance video that were that first emerged several months ago and have really continued to come to light since then as part of this long-running civil lawsuit here in Atlanta that was filed by a group of election security advocates. But they really deserve a lot of credit because this evidence does underpin a lot of the criminal charges that these four co-defendants that were involved in the Coffee County breach face. Now, there's also several of the unnamed co-conspirators, unindicted co-conspirators, who are also mentioned in reference to Coffee County, Georgia. And what we reported yesterday was really con a continuation of the storyline we've been tracking for the last two years, that these text messages, these communications, these emails draw a direct line from these on-the-ground operatives who gained unauthorized, unauthorized access to the elections office in Coffee County, all the way up to some of Trump's personal attorneys at the time, some members of his legal team like Sidney Powell. Uh, the indictment specifically talks about how Sidney Powell contracted this um, cyber forensics firm to examine voting systems that they in Coffee County that they had no authorization to have access to. That really is the crux of the broader sort of conspiracy that they lay out in the indictment. And it really does is a through line throughout the entire charging document itself. Yeah, I mean, and so when you look at the names, I mean, Jake and I were reading through the names earlier and we, we missed the second half of it initially as you were like scanning it so quickly. And when you look at the first half of the names, People at home would probably recognize a lot of them, obviously Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows. But it's that second half that you pointed out. Uh, more of those are the ones who are tied to what happened in, in Coffee County. I mean, these are people who were once, you know, pretty prominent, you know, county Republicans in Georgia and now have, have just been indicted on charges in their state. 
Yeah, one that was just mentioned a few minutes ago, I believe, was Kathy Latham, who was a Republican official in Coffee County and who was caught on surveillance video that we reported almost a year ago, opening the door to the elections office in this county and letting this cyber forensic team into the restricted voting um, system area. So, you know, prominent Republican officials like that, the elections uh, supervisor, former election supervisor in Coffee County, Misty Hampton, also one of the co-defendants named in this indictment, as well as a man named Scott Hall, who's a local bail bondsman here in Fulton County. And he was caught on audio um, in, as part of this, um, this civil suit, admitting that he was the one who helped coordinate and facilitate and was actually there on the day that these operatives gained access to voting systems and coffee. So really from all the way from members of Trump's legal team down to a local bail bondsman here in Atlanta, you really see the scope of the charges and the people that are being charged um, that Founding Willis is really covering here. Yeah, Zach Cohen, great reporting on this outside the courthouse in Atlanta. I want to bring back in my panel. And Jennifer Rogers, as you, you look at this and what Zach was reporting there about Coffee County and how this goes from the 45th president of the United States down to a bail bondsman in a county in Georgia that has about 44,000 people, just speaks to the scope of how detailed and broad this indictment is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you can't do everything yourself, right? You need these people on the ground. And remember, we're not just talking about Georgia. In this indictment, we largely are. But in the broader scheme, there were a lot more states that were in play, and they had people on the ground in those states doing the fake, fake elector scheme and other things to try to overturn the election. So there are a lot of people here who have to act, right, in order to make these things happen. And, yeah, all the way down to the bail bondsman. I mean, the, the indictment is so, so detailed. And that's the thing that really strikes me, so granular in the details in here about what everybody did. And, you know, it's, it's not quite as easy to read as much of a narrative as the January 6th indictment is. Um, but if you do read through it, it just gives you so much detail. And it goes in, in pretty much chronological order, the acts of the, the RICO charge. And so you can just go through and it says, you know, in Coffee County on this date, they picked the guy up from the airport. They took him to the where the voting machines were. And then the next paragraph talks about the next action. And these are the overt acts. And so it's not quite as narrative as it could be. But if you kind of try to avoid the legalistic language and just read the meat of each of these paragraphs, it is telling you the story and it includes all of these details. Yeah, and almost every paragraph ends with this was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy, as Bakari was noting, just how many different acts there are, are in here. I mean, Tomato, you worked on the January 6th Congressional Committee. I mean, just knowing what you didn't have access to, people like Mark Meadows who fought cooperating and working with your committee. When you read through this, I mean, what stands out to you, not just from Coffee County, but everything? I think what stands out is what the tools that we didn't have at our disposal. One thing we didn't have was the power to charge. And I think here you look at the extensive number of defendants. These are folks who presumably either chose not to cooperate or were, asked, or were not asked to cooperate. So I think that's one thing that we didn't have in our investigation. The second thing is time. I mean, we really were under the gun with the select committee. And here, uh, we've ha they've had the opportunity in Fulton County to take two and a half years to truly develop this, to get into this kind of granular detail that's now reflected in the indictment. So I think while the select committee, I think we did, a, you know, frankly, an amazing job. I think we put forward a thorough uh, case to the American people. But I think what Fawny's done here is take some of our work, the same way Jack Smith did, dig even deeper and present a compelling story. And one thing, Scott was noting the, what we've heard from Republicans already. One thing from Trump and Republicans is why this took so long, why it's mm -hmm. been 
you know, this period of time. I mean, even the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, complained to me about a month ago about how long it was taking. Is it pretty normal and standard? I mean, as unusual and abnormal as this is for it to take this long to bring charges like this? Well, two and a half years is a long time, but you're charging the president of the United States, right? I mean, you really do need to be careful. A lot of these people challenged their testimony, wouldn't come in. They wanted to litigate. That takes a lot of time. So, you know, I think given the circumstances of what she ended up putting together, the president, all these other people, you know, the the challenges that she had to litigate, it's not an unreasonable amount of time. And I'll also say, if she rushed it, man, they would have been screaming about this. Oh, you know, I'm a presidential candidate, so you rushed to indict me so that I can't run. You know, if they had rushed it, we would have a whole nother set of complaints on our hands. Much better that she takes the time she does. I mean, Scott, the whole premise that they have is that these charges are bogus. I mean, it is kind of a weird argument for them to be making. Why didn't they charge me sooner with these charges that I disagree with? Well, I mean, they, they just want to cast the whole thing as an attempt to interfere in his campaign prospects and the, toss it out here, you know, in the... At the height of his popularity in the Republican Party, he's crushing everyone. He's tied with Joe Biden in the national polls. And now you drop all this stuff on me. It's a huge conspiracy. And so, I mean, that's why they're making the argument. As I, as I read through all this, actually, as I sit out here all these nights and read through all these things, I just keep going back in time. Like <laughs> Thanksgiving 2020, if Donald Trump had just said, you know what? You can have it. You can have Joe Biden. I'm going to go play golf and I'll see you guys in four years. Had he just done that, he'd be up 10 points right now, and Bakari would be the head of the site selection committee for Joe Biden's nursing home. I mean, the, the Democrats would be in a meltdown right now. Instead, we have five indictments in all these jurisdictions. And, Republic- I'm, in char- and I'm in charge of his making sure he moves back in smoothly into the White House <laughs> I know, for a second term. But it's, it's just <laughs> you go back in time and you see how much, how different this could have played out for Donald Trump. But instead, they went down this crazy road with these crazy people. Trump himself even called Sidney Powell crazy. Yes, and instead of maybe coasting back in over a very weak incumbent, he's now facing jail time in a whole bunch of different places. Crazy. I mean, look, and and just to put a fine point on everything Scott so just amazingly articulated here, uh, there's not a Republican in America that can beat Donald Trump for the Republican nomination, (laughs) which tells you how in disarray the Republicans are. I I do want to talk about just some magnificent figures again in this indictment. I mean, I I just think back to 2001 when Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor. And there are people who've worked with Rudy Giuliani. John Avalon was a speechwriter very close to Rudy Giuliani. Um, You know, Rudy Giuliani could have had a statue erected for him in about 2002 or 2003 in the center of Times Square. I mean, that's how popular he was. And now he's being indicted um, in, 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 um, in Atlanta, Georgia, you have lawyers who were involved in this. You have bail bondsmen who were involved in this. And at the top of the scheme, you have the president of the United States. I know we have writer strikes and everything going on in Hollywood. You could not jump the shark like this with this indictment. And when you look at how detailed this is, when you look at some of the things they went out of their way to do, to abuse people, to torment people, when you look at the fact that they were breaking into facilities, that they were going into voting booths, when they have text messages and emails that back all of this up. So this isn't something, and I, you know, I, I don't like when people say that Fani, respectfully to my friend Scott, they say that Fani is a, a partisan, because this isn't partisan when you read it. I mean, if you take Democrat and Republican off anybody's label when you read this indictment, you see just and unjust. You see accountability and you see law breaking. 
And then you get to the political aspect of it, where all my Republican friends, Nikki Haley, uh, 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 Chris Christie, all of them are running on law and order. Well, what you see in this is an abuse of law and order. That's what this is. So I don't know how you I don't know how you fence it or, or you thread this needle, but they have a whole problem on the Republican side. And their problem is called Donald Trump. Well, you, you raise an interesting point. There are a lot of Republicans right now who think the institutions of law and order are broken. I mean, there's a whole big chunk of the Republican Party. As a black man in America, I've been trying to tell you all this for a long <laughs> period of time. So welcome. I'm not going to fight you on that, but welcome. But, 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 but you, you listen to them. The FBI is corrupt. The Department of Justice is corrupt. These prosecutors. And look, I, I mean, it's. It, you it have is, two prosecutors over there, so just slow down. It, it is, but it is start, <laughs> but it is startling when you have, you know, essentially half or approaching half the country that have lost faith in this. And I mean, this is a true test of institutions right now, and and also a test of whether Americans are willing to accept outcomes. Do you accept outcomes or not? And you know, we're gonna we're gonna say, face several tests in the next twelve to eighteen months. Uh, understatement of the night. Yeah. Morning, whatever we're in. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Fonnie Willis says that she is wanting to plan to try Donald Trump and the 18 co-defendants within the next six months as a trial date. She says she's shooting for all together. Question is, of course, could that work? We'll break it down with our legal analyst next. Former President Trump indicted tonight in the 2020 election subversion case in Georgia. Prosecutors allege that Trump and 18 others, including the likes of Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows and John Eastman, joined a conspiracy to unlawfully change the outcome of the election. I want to bring in former U.S. Attorney Harry Littman. Harry, my friend, so good to see you. Um, You and I have been talking about the prospects of this happening for quite some time. I, I wonder what sticks out to you because this is now the fourth indictment. We're talking about, what, 91 cumulative charges over four cases. This is a significant one. It really is. On the one hand, Laura, it's a recapitulation of everything we've seen dating back to the January 6th committee. The 161 overt acts, most of them are not new. There's a few little snippets but they're panoramic and encyclopedic in what they chronicle on the one hand. On the other, it really is something new. First, and I'd say foremost, the 18 other defendants. So this is the first time that all the president's men and women, including Giuliani, Mark Meadows, I'll say that twice, Mark Meadows, Eastman, Chesbro, etc., are all charged. And when you think sort of in a long-range way about accountability from the country for everything that happened, it must include these folks. So this is the first one that will. And the second well, Harry, thing on that, so on that distinct- point, before you go to that, yeah. before you go to the second point, let me lean in for a second on the idea of Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani. Perhaps many thought Giuliani. Mark Meadows, though, many thought the reason he was not on the indictment from Jack Smith is because he was a cooperator and was providing information of some kind and therefore was able to achieve some level of uh, special status or immunity. He is in this one. So does this say to you that he did not cooperate with Fonnie Willis? Yeah, so it's a very important puzzle. He's got a great lawyer, George Terwilliger, and when it came out at first, what a genius. He had gotten him out of that scrape. But uh-oh, maybe not so much because... If he doesn't cooperate and strike some, if he had struck a deal, Laura, and in the um, 
January 6th case, you would think it would have had to encompass his exposure here. His lawyer would know enough to do that. So right now he's in terrible hot water because if in this case he's he's indicted, his cooperation and, and he's convicted, his cooperation doesn't avail him what we might have thought it did in the other indictment. And maybe it means he's just a witness there, which would be very strange because he did testify in the indictment, uh, excuse me, in the in the federal case. And I thought that must have meant some kind of deal. Right now, we don't know, but the excl- that's the question mark. But the exclamation point is he's been charged, and from the start he's been neck deep, second perhaps only to Trump or Giuliani in his involvement here. And so it's a really important kind of potential blow for justice that he has been named. I mean, you mentioned the first point as well, and I cut you off for the second one to lead into that conversation. But, you know, on that yeah. point, while you while you sort of retrace your steps on that, um, you know, there are about, what, 30 unindicted co-conspirators that are listed in this indictment. Um, I wonder what you make of that, because some would suggest that when you say unindicted co-conspirator, that might as well be a signal blaring that it's a cooperator. What do you think? That is what I think, except 30. That's a big Ooh. number that's hard to get to. There it were is. about uh, 18 electors, and many of them came forward for immunity and, and received it. So that's an obvious big chunk of the 30. But there just must be other you know, state election workers, maybe people in Coffee County who are, were involved, but in a minor way, and Willis was more than happy to sign them up to make her case. Uh, and 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 that's why they're co-conspirators, but they haven't been named. So, you know, it's such a panoramic indictment yeah. or all of Georgia, but also all around the country. That's because of the RICO law. So, yeah, you know, 30 is a very big number. 161 is a very big number. Yes, 98 pages is a very big number. This thing is huge in so many ways. Uh, On that and notion, we'll, we'll find the details. Yeah. Excuse me, on that notion of RICO, I think it still eludes many people, right? RICO, they think of the mob. They think of, you know, you hear of things like criminal enterprise or official acts or the way that it's phrased in here, you know, um, in the many charges, our statements suggest that this was an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy. You see this throughout, throughout. You know, you mentioned Coffee County, and we're hearing a lot about Coffee County. We also know that. Bonnie Willis is the DA of Fulton County, not Coffee County. There's mentioned in this specific indictment, Nevada, um, New Mexico, Arizona, Georgia, just to name a few, Wisconsin, DC, Pennsylvania. I mean, the list goes on. How is she able to envelop all of this into the fold through RICO? The miracle of Rico. Okay, but, and the reason, by the way, Laura, I think it's hard to understand is just because it is hard to understand. It's pretty amorphous. Here is the idea: it was created Rico for the mob, and and they, a sort of what looked like a, a legitimate business out front was really just a shield for all criminal activity. By analogy, but it's the sort of analogy that has prevailed in other cases. This group of people fighting to give the election unlawfully to Donald Trump was a criminal enterprise. The whole thing is like one rotten business with with a business goal, a criminal goal of getting the election to Trump. 
That is RICO. Here it's even a step removed because it's uh, Section C of RICO conspiring to do it. So what, what she's saying is that people agreed to try and to get the election uh, swayed to Trump, committed 161 overt acts, of which they have to prove, stick around, two, two overt acts in order to make RICO stick. So it is, first and foremost, a way to get so much activity in under an umbrella. But the idea of it, at least, is basically everything he was doing from November 3rd to January 6th. Indeed, the indictment goes to September of 2022 when there were lies was all one big criminal enterprise. That's the key concept. And the the enterprise had an objective, and the objective was to put Trump unlawfully back in office. And really quick, Harry, the word conspiracy makes people say, you mean to tell me that Donald Trump, you have to prove that he conspired, had a meeting of the mind with each one of these defendants personally in order to prove the case? More beauty of Rico, right? And he just he, he does it with one person. It's a sprawling. We call it a hub and spoke. But basically, as long as he agreed with one person and everybody of the nineteen did, that's all. That's all it takes. A hub and spoke. Everyone, we're learning new terminology from Harry <laughs> Littman. At this isn't quite the crack of dawn, Caitlin, but we're getting there. But we're seeing a lot of history <laughs> being made right now, Caitlin Collins. Take it away. (laughs) Yeah, uh, we're losing track of time here, but uh, we have a lot more to discuss on the implications of this. I mean, it is a sweeping indictment. Uh, What is the impact it has on the 2024 race that we are currently in the middle of for the Republican nomination? Our CNN political analyst Ron Brownstein joins us now. Ron, I mean, I just wonder when you're reading through this, what you're thinking, uh, everyone who just a few days ago was hanging out in Iowa, what they're thinking of this and what it means for them. You know, look, uh, in the con, I think you have to separate what all of this means for a Republican primary nomination fight and what it might mean if he wins that fight and advances on to the general election. In the context of the Republican primary, Donald Trump has convinced most Republican voters to see it through his lens. He has, Caitlin, he has folded in these indictments into one of the most powerful strains of thought that hold together the modern Republican coalition. And that is the belief that conservatives are the real victim of bias in a diversifying uh, society. You know, uh, that, that um, uh, bias against whites is now as big a problem as bias against minorities, that Christianity in America is under assault, that men are punished just for being like men. Seventy percent or more of Republicans in polls say they agree with all of those propositions. And what Trump has done from the beginning is braid all of these criminal indictments uh, into, uh, you know, an advancing of that argument. I mean, he, he calls the prosecutors, the African-American prosecutors leading cases against them racists, you know, and he basically says they are going after me because they really want to silence you. So there's no question that that argument has proven very powerful. And I think in the Republican primary, because it reinforces what is already uh, an existing belief among most GOP voters. In a general election, it's a whole different question, I think. You know, we saw in that New York Times Siena poll that o- over 55% of voters think he, is, independent voters, think he has committed a serious federal crime. Nearly 60%, even before this indictment, said that what he did after the election threatened American democracy. And we also know from multiple Marist polls for NPR and PBS that three quarters of independents say he should not be president again if he is convicted of a crime. By the way, 60% of Republicans say he should, even if he is. So again, right now, 
clearly strengthening him in a Republican context. What this might mean uh, in a general election, particularly if one of these trials is actually going then, much less if he's convicted, that's a whole other issue. Yeah, it is a whole other issue. But I mean, before we get there, if you are Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, any of these other Republican candidates who are running against them, typically when your opponent gets indicted four times, it's a political gift, the biggest political gift. But instead, I mean, there are also polls that show they don't like, even if they don't like what Trump has done and what he's accused of doing, they don't like when other Republicans attack him. So what do you do if you're you're one of those other Republicans? Uh, they have painted themselves into a corner in the same corner the Republicans have painted themselves into for what, eight years now, uh, you know, we're, we're eight years uh, since the since the escalator. I mean, essentially, they, they've they've argued themselves in, in a circle. They've said we can't challenge Trump when he crosses a line, when he breaks a norm and certainly getting you know indicted four times as a former president is about as big a norm as you can break. We can't challenge him because the base supports him and the base will, you know, rise up against us. Well, one of the reasons why Trump's hold on the base has been so unbreakable is because no one they trust or very few people they trust will make the case to them that his behavior is unacceptable. I mean, so, you know, in many ways, they have laced the straitjacket that they are that they are living in. And, and to the extent that the other Republican candidates, I think Mike Pence has deviated from this now, certainly getting closer to like a Christie Asa Hutchinson. But they sent someone like DeSantis or Hawley, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Scott or uh, Haley have have echoed Trump's arguments that that he is the victim of this weaponized, you know, conspiracy so vast as Joe McCarthy called it. Um, uh, they have made themselves bit player in his drama. If 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 the deep state and Democrats are pulling out all of these stops, uh, all of these efforts to stop Donald Trump, why would you bypass him as a Republican voter and go to someone that they're not as worried about? Um, so they have they've kind of made their bed. I'm not sure they can find a different pathway at this point, uh, but certainly uh, it, it is a, it's kind of a, a syllogism for them to argue that they can't speak you know, truth to power here because they have created the, the, the circumstances in the base that they lament in private. What is it? What do you make of the fact that it's one thirty nine in the morning? Here we are talking. I mean, and yeah. the front runner for the Republican Party right now, he's posting on his website about this indictment, criticizing the fact that some documents were apparently briefly posted online, but complaining about the fact that this is coming now and calling it a witch hunt. I mean, he has been able to effectively use that with Republicans before. I mean, the idea that that's going to stop because it's indictment number four seems unlikely. Right. Highly unlikely. I mean, the, the, the die is cast in the Republican uh, primary. Now, whether, uh, you know, there are still some Republicans who hold out the Republicans critical of Trump uh, or who just simply believe that he can't win again. Uh, they hold out hope that actual trials might be the straw that finally breaks the camel back. It's not likely, as we're saying, that anything is going to convince Republican voters that this makes him, any of these actions make him uh, unfit to be president. And I think a big part of that is because so few Republicans who believe that have been willing to take the chance of trying to tell their voters that. But again, uh, you know, Americans are very reluctant to give Joe Biden another term. No question about it. You know, the majority of the public says he's too old, uh, uh, concerned about whether he's too old to serve four more years. They continue to be negative on the economy. But when you look at how general election voters are responding to these indictments, even before you get to the issue of trials and possible convictions, um, there are real yellow warning lights on the dashboard 
uh, for Republicans here. As I said, I mean, we, we've seen polling, multiple polls, significant majorities of independents say he should not be president again uh, if he uh, if he is convicted of a crime. Now, will we get there before the election? I don't know. But Donald Trump is the one who, if he's the nominee, has to increase his vote from last time. He lost by seven million votes. Uh, he's got to expand his coalition. It's hard to see what's in here, you know, in all of these indictments that are going to cause people who did not vote for Trump in 2020 to go, oh, yeah, now now I think he's right. Plus, you have the added issue of abortion uh, in those in those key states, as we saw in Ohio this week. So, again, for Republicans, you know, they're the, the ones who, who are questioning whether Trump can win again. They have ammunition uh, in that argument, but you don't see the other candidates making that very strongly. And as a result, it really isn't yet part of the dialogue. Maybe that'll change the debate. And thereafter, you know, uh, the prospect of hanging concentrates the mind, as they say. And uh, all the Republican candidates, I think, have to acknowledge that whatever they're doing so far is not working, given the magnitude of his lead. What was that phrase you used about concentrates the mind? Yes, you know, I think it was. Uh, I think it was in the in the revolution. The prospect of hanging concentrates the mind, and then you know, in this case, in this case, the prospect of getting trampled in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina ought to concentrate the mind. We'll see if it does. Ron Brownstein, we're going to leave it there. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Up next, what the Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is saying tonight in the wake of this historic 41 count indictment, and what she believes is next. Donald Trump and 18 others now facing charges in Georgia and what prosecutors allege was a criminal enterprise for their efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election, not just in that state, but in several other key swing states. This indictment is bringing charges against some of the most prominent advisors to Trump. The Fulton County District Attorney, Fonnie Willis, spoke publicly tonight after that indictment and those charges was unsealed. I'm here with the prosecutors and investigators who have worked diligently on the investigation of criminal attempts to interfere in the administration of Georgia's 2020 presidential election. Today, based on information developed by that investigation, a Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals with violations of Georgia law arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. The indictment includes 41 felony counts and is 97 pages long. Please remember that everyone charged in this bill of indictment is presumed innocent. Specifically, the indictment brings felony charges against Donald John Trump, Rudolph William Louis Giuliani, John Charles Eastman, Mark Randall Meadows, John Cheeseboro, Jeffrey Clark, Jenna Lynn Ellis, Ray Stallings Smith III, Robert David Cheely, Michael A. Roman, David James Schaefer, Sean Micah Tresher Steele, Stephen K. 
Cliff Guard Lee, Harrison William Prescott Floyd, Travion C. Cootie, Sydney Catherine Powell, Kathleen Austin Latham, Scott Graham Hall, and Misty Hampton, also known as Emily Misty Hayes. Every individual charged in the indictment is charged with one count of violating Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act through participation in a criminal enterprise in Fulton County, Georgia and elsewhere to accomplish the illegal goal of allowing Donald J. Trump to seize the presidential term of office beginning on January 20th, 21. All elections in our nation are administered by these states, which are given the responsibility of ensuring a fair process and an accurate counting of the votes. That includes elections for presidential electors, Congress, state officials, and local offices. The state's role in this process is essential to the functioning of our democracy. Georgia, like every state, has laws that allow those who believe that results of an election are wrong, whether because of intentional wrongdoing or unintentional error, to challenge those results in our state courts. The indictment alleges that rather than abide, abide by Georgia's legal process for election challenges, the defendants engaged in a criminal racketeering enterprise to overturn Georgia's presidential election result. I mean, Laura, I got to say, just listening to her read out those names, and when, when I was reading through it initially, a little bit before we heard from her, reading Mark Meadows' name, I think probably stood mm -hmm. out the most to me, just seeing that he, the former White House chief of staff, had been indicted here. I mean, it's unbelievable. And you think about the names that were read, some perhaps you expected, but the others maybe not, and just the sheer scope of all of it. And what sticks in my mind is this notion, rather than abide by the legal process by which you are to challenge the election results, they chose a allegedly criminal enterprise instead. It goes back to a point I think Scott made earlier on your panel, Caitlin, about but for, had Donald Trump just done something different or all these different players, we would be in a very, perhaps very different political landscape today. And something even Jack Smith noted in his indictment in the mm -hmm. introduction there saying, you know, there is a legal avenue to challenge results you don't like. It's not just that you just you're stuck with this and that's it. There's a legal avenue. There's this avenue that's alleged here. You can contest, you can challenge, you can't conspire. And here, again, you already see the beginning of trying to educate a potential jury pool, right? She goes on to describe the distinction between an overt act and, of course, a predicate act. She's educating already on the RICO, and she's showing people, look, the reach of her jurisdiction because of RICO goes even beyond her county and even beyond her state. We'll see what happens in the actual Proof, though, Caitlin. Yeah, I have a feeling you're going to be very busy at 11 o'clock, Laura. Um, panel, <laughs> back with me now. Scott, I mean, she invoked your yeah. name there. I mean, just 
<sighs> the point of what could have been avoided. What's your final thought here tonight? Well, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, every day would be Christmas. I mean, that's the, the thing. I mean, you can go back in time and wish people had made different choices, but we are where we are. You know, my, my final... I'll let that slide just given it's one fifty three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. I... <laughs> that political analysis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, he hit her over here, Scott. <laughs> you know what? I? A broad, broad majority of the American people are very dissatisfied with the prospect of a rematch between Trump and Biden. And I think there is going to be even more dissatisfaction if we don't get the results of some of these cases before people vote next November. He has been charged with, you know, mishandling national security documents. He's been charged trying to overthrow the government on January 6th. He's been charged in this Georgia case. To me, not getting not letting him resolve these things before he stands for the office of presidency, if he's the nominee, I just don't see how we can stand for it. But do we think it's likely? I mean, maybe not. You you both seem skeptical, uh, the, as the attorneys at the table, skeptical that <coughs> this case <coughs> itself. I, I did. Well, I'm sorry. I, yeah, thank you. You are, but you're wearing your political <laughs> Just because, just because political I tonight. took the bar a couple of times, do not exclude <laughs> me from the conversation. Okay, we're going to All right, good point. Not attorney at the table. Um, well, I will wait to hear your answer in a moment. But what do y'all think? There's no way. There is no way. There are all these defendants. I mean, the most exciting. Just this one. Yeah, just this one. The most exciting thing about this case is there's going to be so much movement, right? I mean, there's so many people here. A lot of them are going to plead out. Some of them are going to flip. It's going to change the complexion of this case a lot as we go along. But I don't know how she can talk about six months when we have all these other cases, some of them set for trial, others about to be set for trial. You can't tell Donald Trump he has to go to trial in two places at the same time. So, you know, I, this is never going to happen in six months. I don't think it'll happen before the election. Your predictions? I, I agree. I don't think it's going to happen uh, in six months and probably not before the election. But I do think that Jack Smith's uh, January 6th case is likely to go to trial before the, before the election. And that'll give the American people and Donald Trump the chance to defend himself on these very uh, facts here. Although not on TV, Sam. Not on TV. (laughs) That's my last and favorite attorney at the table. Thank you. Thank (laughs) you so very much. Uh, I just feel like we are on the precipice of very dark times in this country. I think we forget how fragile democracy is. I think that we should have learned that lesson from 2016, where this conversation was about Russian interference and all of these other things. And democracy, she's very, very fragile, and I'm not sure we learned that lesson. I think Donald Trump going through all of these issues, we've talked about constitutional crises, we've talked about all of these other things that could be on the forefront. It's going to be exciting, it's going to be good TV, but at the end of the day, what truly happens when uh, this individual, with all of his legal issues, continues to fracture the country, and how do we recover? Because even once, if Donald Trump is found guilty... Uh, long in years ahead, the cancer that is Donald Trump will still be a part of the fabric of this country. All right. Thanks to all for joining us tonight, breaking down that remarkable, a remarkable indictment, which we will be doing for the days to come, Laura. History again in the making. Another historic night. Rosemary Church picks up our coverage in just a moment. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.